Good morning. Let me add my welcome to everyone this morning. It's great to be with you all and worship. Let me add my welcome as well to anyone who is a guest with us this morning. As we turn to God's Word, if you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of 2 John. Thank you, music team, for guiding us in worship. Thank you, Carrie Jane, for reading our passage, and Zach for calling us to worship this morning. But let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn uh, to this powerful, short letter. Well, Father, we draw near to you this morning by your invitation, and not just by your invitation, but by your enablement. We've been reconciled to you through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And so we don't want to take that for granted. We want to come before you, adoring you, longing for you. So grow our love for you today as we turn to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we humans are prone to fear. There is a fear, there is a phobia for nearly every occasion. Uh, Have you ever heard of taphophobia? Taphophobia. So this is the fear of being buried alive as a result of being incorrectly pronounced dead. That's very specific and also horrifying. But it turns out, if you've read accounts throughout history, this fear isn't totally irrational. There have been cases of people even waking up at their own funerals. But especially before the era of modern medicine, it wasn't, so, it wasn't always so easy to detect vital signs. Sometimes the the faint signs of life would be missed and someone would be buried. And so some 19th century inventors took up the cause and they tried to design coffins with built-in alarms or bells so a person, if they happened to be in this horrific situation, they could signal to someone above ground. There's this one uh, patented in 1868. It's a little bit hard to see, but you can see there's a, there's a bell in there somewhere if somebody just pulls the rope on the inside. And then there's this one. These are real, by the way. This one, this one patented in 1868. Uh, the motion of the body in the coffin would trigger a clockwork-driven fan that would bring fresh air into the coffin and also sound an alarm. This makes me thankful to be alive today. How about you? Man, for all our modern problems, and we have plenty, we've mostly uh, mastered the science of detecting vital signs, thankfully. Well, we continue, as you've heard through our series uh, in John's epistles. This morning we come to John's second letter, uh, where he shows us some spiritual vital signs. In a world filled with people who are spiritually dead and many, as we see in this passage, claiming to know God and yet being false teachers, John tells this church he's writing to and all of us today as believers how we as Christians show one another and show the world around us that we are truly alive in Christ. And it's by walking in truth and love. Those are the vital signs that John lays out for us in this short letter. So let's look again at 2 John, starting in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. 
the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. And so the author calls himself the elder. That suggests the recipient, whoever they were, knew who he was. He didn't have to use his first name. They knew him by this term. Now, all churches uh, in the early church had elders, but he simply calls himself the elder. So, showing his position of authority, probably over other elders in other churches. Traditionally, we take this to be the Apostle John, the same John who wrote 1 John. Now, there's some evidence that there was another John, another church leader named John in this period, who was called the Elder John. And there's some late church tradition that would suggest this John, different from the Apostle John, may have written this. Uh, But really, I think the weight of internal evidence inside the letter that really there are so much similarities in style and even in subject to what we see in 1 John, not to mention the Gospel of John, that I would, in my opinion, all three letters seem to be written by the same person. But it's addressed to the elect lady and her children. Now, there's varying opinion also on who this could be. Uh, Some even think this was a specific woman. Uh, Some even think the Greek words here suggest a first name like electa for elect woman. The context more points to this being a church and her children being the church's members. Now, God refers to his people throughout Scripture with female titles like wife and bride, even in the song, one of the songs that we sung this morning, the church being pictured as a bride. And that's what's happening here. And so John writes this letter in a very similar context, if you've tracked with us throughout our series as we just finished 1 John last week, John also here encourages the church to keep following Christ in light of all the false teachers around them trying to lead them astray. And you'll also notice how short this book is. We read the whole thing just a moment ago. It's only 245 words in the Greek text, and only 3 John is shorter in the Bible. So of all the books in the Bible, 3 John uh, and 2 John are the shortest. Now, this book, entire thing, could have easily been fit on a single piece of papyri. As a writer, I love brevity. I love to see a writer use words well, to say something clearly in just a few words. And that's what we have here. John gets straight to the point. And so let's do that too. Let's get to the point. Look at verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Already, uh, we see the similarities, don't we, to 1 John. There's this almost cyclical presentation of these core themes. We see truth repeated already four times in these few verses so far. We see the emphasis on this central command from Jesus to love one another. And we see this idea of walking. And so putting it together, we see John laying out the spiritual vital signs of a a vibrant, healthy, living church community And that is that its members are walking in truth and love. John says he rejoiced greatly. 
He was overjoyed to find them walking this way. So in other words, these vital signs were evident to those around. You couldn't look at this church and mistakenly think they were dead. They were clearly alive. Their spiritual life was vibrant. And so let's follow this logic from the verses that we just read. He's happy that they're walking in truth as God commands. He repeats the primary command to love one another. And he says, this is love, that we walk according to God's commands. This is the command, he says, that we should walk in it. So again, it's sort of circular, isn't it? His point is that this is all woven together. We really can't separate this. We can't separate truth from love or love from truth, which we've already seen in 1 John. And that seems to be John's appeal here. Since you're walking in the truth, and I'm so glad you are, don't stop. Make sure you don't stop also walking in love. Because again, to walk in truth, as he's just told us, means ultimately to love one another. Just can't get away from that, can we? And real love, he says, is obeying the truth of God's commands. And this is really important, especially in light of the context. You might think with all the influence of these false teachers, John might want to only emphasize truth. Guard the truth. Keep fighting for the truth. Protect the truth. And that's here. We see that in this letter, and especially in the following verses. But up front, he's real clear to put these two things together. Truth and love. Truth and love. Because if this church and if any church has lost their love at the expense of fighting for the truth, they would no longer look at all like a Christian community. They would look dead. There would be no pulse that you could detect. If it isn't loving, it isn't Christian. If they had given up on the truth of the gospel, on the other hand, for the sake of seeking after some form of love, they no longer would be a Christian community. Also, they would appear dead. And 2,000 years later, the church still wrestles with the question of how we hold truth and love together. We see it all around us. We see denominations dividing in real time over very specific issues that really boil down to this question, how do we hold truth and love together? It's human nature to fall on one extreme or the other. Some fall more on the side of truth and they turn to wielding truth like a weapon. And the effect of that is it always tarnishes the church's reputation in the world. Others on the other side seem to be ready to abandon biblical truth for the sake of some love, quote-unquote, and really are left with neither, just a worldly counterfeit of truth and love. And like I said, it's human nature that we fall on one extreme or the other, but John is so clear. We as Christians are not only called to hold these together, but we're uniquely equipped to do so. I don't know about you, my church background growing up, it definitely leaned more toward the truth side of the equation. The Bible college I attended had a legalistic bent to it. They championed fighting for truth above all else. I remember a class I took in college, I had a professor, and the class was on the modern church, and really it could have been called, Everybody's Wrong But Us. That was the tone. And in that class, he kept repeating a key statement that I'll never forget. He said, truth is absolute, but love is a virtue. And he said that over and over again. And on the surface, there's nothing really wrong with what he said. That's true. 
But his implication was clear that the virtue is always secondary. Truth is absolute. That's non-negotiable. And love is a nice bonus if we can fit that in too. Of course, this is misguided. This goes against what John is saying in this letter and what Jesus says and what Paul says. This is like the Pharisees who thought by their outward conformity to God's commands that they showed themselves to be alive spiritually. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Not alive at all. See, without love, even the truth, even God's truth, without love, gets twisted out of shape. It gets misused, and it becomes not even the truth anymore. N.T. Wright says it so well, love is not the optional extra to be added when everything else is sorted out. It is the thing that goes round round and round like blood circulating in a healthy living body or to and fro like good Strong breathing. Vital signs. So in this first half of the letter, John emphasizes walking in the truth is also walking in love. And walking in love is walking in the truth. I hope you've caught that by now. It's how we show that we're alive in Christ. Now this letter is written to believers just like 1 John was. So let me remind us that he's not teaching us how we become Christians. He doesn't say we we get life by walking this out. No, we're given life as a free gift through Jesus Christ. In that life, then we we live it then by walking it out. Walking in truth and love is the life of one who has been made alive in Jesus. And so he's also not saying that Christians, that we lose our salvation if we fail in truth or love. We're human. We're imperfect. We're fallible, right? We can be misled from truth like this church that John wrote to was in danger of being misled. We can fail as so often we do to show love. And so we don't lose our salvation. It's just that when we're not walking in truth and love, spiritually speaking, it looks a whole lot like we're not alive anymore. It's hard to detect a pulse. And John is also implying movement here. Movement. He says walking, not sitting in the truth, not lying down in the truth, walking in it. He's not overjoyed that they know the truth. That's implied. It's good to know the truth. That's assumed. He's overjoyed what? That they're walking in it. They're living it out. The truth of the gospel has moved from their minds to their hearts to their hands and feet. They're living out the gospel in their daily interactions, in their workplace, in their homes, in their conversations. They're living it out. This life of Christ in them is as obvious as a a beeping heart monitor would be in the hospital. This person is alive. This church is alive. Our mission statement as a church, if you're new around here, it's outside the, the sanctuary doors, moving together into the remarkable love of Jesus Christ. Grounded in the gospel and yet always moving, always following Jesus ever moving as we live out our calling in this everyday place and time. See, for most of us, the issue isn't whether or not we know the truth. Many of us have grown up in church. We've been Christians for decades. We've attended more Bible studies. We've heard more sermons than we can count, and all of that is great. Don't hear me discounting that. But the temptation is to think that's enough. 
Well, I know the truth, so I'm good. Check. To think acquiring more Bible knowledge is the same thing as living it out, and it's not. John, writing as the elder here, speaks as a spiritual parent to all of us, and he says, I'm so happy to see my spiritual children walking in truth. Like any parent or grandparent, we, we impart knowledge, we try to impart wisdom to our kids, to our grandkids, to our spiritual children. Not so they would have head knowledge, right? Not so they can pass an exam, but so they can live life well. So that we can one day see them walking it out. And that's John's heart here for the church. So while we need this constant reminder that love is foundational, we can never get away from walking the truth out in love, John also reminds us we can never let go of the truth either. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, taken on their own, this passage might seem at first glance to contradict what we just heard about love, right? Don't even greet them. Don't even welcome these false teachers into your house. If a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knocks on your door, is John saying, don't even smile, don't even say hello? Now, we also, we want to be careful here. John's warning seems pretty clear. We don't want to miss what he's saying. We don't want to take part in their evil deeds and their false teaching. And so we do have many Christians seem to take this quite literally. That if someone knocks on their door bringing a false teaching, we don't invite them in. We don't smile. We don't even say hello to be on the safe side. But context is key, as always. We can't just cut and paste these words and drop them into our modern context without understanding the time and place they were written. John's command, he's speaking directly into this ancient uh, cultural practice of showing hospitality. When people traveled, there was no Holiday Inn. There were inns, of course, as we we see in Scripture, but they they were dirty, they were often unsafe, they were unsavory places to be. And so Christians went out of their way to show the love of Christ in this really practical way we see throughout the New Testament. They would open their home to fellow travelers, especially to Christians who were maybe on mission in this city or that city. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Christians opened their home to Paul and his missionary journeys as a direct way of supporting the work he was doing. So you have this custom of hospitality. You have Christians, most of all, of anybody, ready and willing to open their homes and be gracious and show hospitality. And now you have these false teachers Some claiming to be Christians, but who really are not. Hey, give me some room and board for a while. Support me in my ministry. John says, don't receive them. Don't receive the false teachers into your house for food and lodging, because to do so would have been directly supporting their false teaching. So as we seek to apply this today, and we certainly want to do that, it doesn't mean don't be nice to the Mormon who knocks on your door. Let's show them the love of Christ. 
Let's be consistent with John's teaching throughout the whole letter. Let's walk in truth and love. But taking part in their false teaching would be the problem here to avoid. So supporting their efforts in some way. So don't be tempted to see this passage as an excuse to be mean. Right? To drop a truth bomb that has no love. Or to start an argument on social media in the name of Jesus. Okay, that's not at all what John is providing us here. But this passage does encourage us. It does admonish us as modern believers to hold on to the truth in a world that tells us love means affirming everything and anything under the sun. If you remember some years ago, tolerance used to be the big word. And that was sort of a step to where we are now, which is really you're expected to fully embrace and endorse and affirm whatever else someone says is their truth. And John says that's not real love. That's not real love either. Did you notice how he describes these false teachers in verse 9? Look at that. Look at verse 9. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. To go on ahead in the Greek here is to run ahead too far, which is a really interesting contrast to walking in truth. They've run ahead of the truth. They've gone beyond the truth into error and lies. And so the timeless message that John is giving us here is that we must hold on tight to both truth and love, not just in our heads, but in our words and actions. That's how we show that we're alive. We have to live it out. And how we live this out, how we hold truth and love together in our particular culture and time in history has to always be worked out by the church together with the Holy Spirit. So Christians today, we need to continue to grow in our ability to have actual conversations on these core issues, how we hold truth and love together around some very difficult issues facing the church today. Not just picking a side and throwing stones at the other side, but asking truly how can we show the love of Jesus Christ, not compromising on truth or love. Not just proclaiming what we believe and wielding it like a weapon, but living it out lovingly. Are we moving in our faith? Are you moving? Am I moving? Are we as a body moving? John shows us spiritual vital signs here as movement. It's walking. It's not standing still, growing stagnant in our faith. And it's also not running ahead away from Christ off the cliff, right? It's walking in step with Jesus. We've called our series Love Without Fear because perfect love, as we saw in 1 John, casts out fear, and that includes all fears. That includes phobias even as horrible as taphophobia. Because in Christ, we actually don't have to worry about death at all, not just because of what awaits us after death, but the truth in Christ is we've already died. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 6? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so in Christ, we have died to the power of sin. We have been made alive together in Christ in the power of God. 
We've been raised with Christ. We've been made alive to walk in newness of life, to show ourselves alive, his truth, his love, alive in us. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we thank you for the power and the beauty of this short letter and how you used this this apostle like a spiritual father telling us all to walk in truth and to walk in love. And so we ask your spirit now to open our eyes to the ways that we might personally and even as a church might tend to fall toward one extreme or another and really fall out of step with you. And so help us, Father, enable us in Christ and by the power of your Spirit to walk out truth and love together, not just in general, but in the very specific issues that are facing the church today at large and the specific people that are in our community that need your truth and your love. We ask that our community would see the life of Christ vibrant and at work here in this place, that they too might want to receive your life. Keep us moving together into your love. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let us stand together.